New California case law, new California statutes, that's what I discuss in this podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Ganchi. I'm a trial lawyer at Casey Gary in San Diego, and I focus my practice on TBI, brain injury cases, and trials. I'm also a total nerd about tracking new laws, as this emerging and developing info can win and lose cases. Please enjoy my podcast, The Ganchi Law Update, a Casey Gary podcast. Must plaintiff prove defendant's wealth to claim punitive damages? This question and discussion are within the 2022 case, Doe v. Lee, cited as 79 Cal App 5th 612, and that's in our show notes. In this case, here's the issue. If a person has acted improperly, negligently, or maybe intentionally, and harmed someone else, sometimes California law allows plaintiff to seek punitive damages. These damages serve to punish the defendant, not just try to compensate the plaintiff for injuries, but also to punish the defendant for the wrongful acts. This case, Doe v. Lee, has good information regarding whether a verdict for punitives is excessive in the eyes of the law. Our California Supreme Court has given three factors three factors to decide if a puny's award is excess, excessive. Factor one, the reprehensibility of the defendant's actions. Quote, the more rep- re- reprehensible the act, the greater the appropriate punishment, assuming all other facts, factors are equal. Factor two, the relationship between the amount of compensatory and punitive damages, because even an act of considerable reprehensibility will not be seen to justify a proportionally high amount of punitive damages if the actual harm suffered thereby is small. And factor three, which the court focuses on with the Stovey Lee case, the wealth of the particular defendant. Plaintiffs hold the burden to prove this. The burden is on the plaintiff rather than on the defendant to introduce evidence of a defendant's financial condition in making a punitive damages assessment. So let's focus on factor three, defendant's wealth. Why does the court focus or care about the defendant's wealth? The court says this, we consider the wealth of the, the, wealth of the particular defendant because obviously the function of deterrence will not be served if the wealth of the defendant allows him to absorb the award with little or no discomfort By the same token, of course, the function of punitive damages is not served by an award which, in light of the defendant's wealth and the gravity of the particular act, exceeds the level necessary to properly punish and detour. Restated in another way, the purpose of punitive damages is not served by financially destroying a defendant. The purpose is to deter, not to destroy. The issue in Doe v. Lee was whether the court had sufficient evidence of defendant's wealth status. And that begs the question, how, how can we, plaintiffs, obtain a defendant's wealth status? The court says this, there are mechanisms in place that give plaintiffs the tool they need to ensure they can collect the necessary information to establish a defendant's financial condition under civil, um, under civil code section 3295 sub C, the plaintiff is allowed in a proper showing to subpoena documents or witnesses to be available at the trial for the purpose of establishing the profits or financial condition of the defendant. The plaintiff may also obtain pretrial discovery of that information. Additionally, a number of cases have held that noncompliance with a court order to disclose financial condition precludes a defendant from challenging the the sufficiency of the evidence of a punitive damage award on appeal. So those are the mechanisms. 
is evidence of defendant's earnings or profit alone enough proof? Nope. As the court says here, in most cases, evidence of earnings or profit alone are not sufficient without examining the liabilities side of the balance sheet. What is required is evidence of the defendant's ability to pay the damage award. Thus, there should be some evidence of the defendant's actual wealth. Normally, evidence of liabilities should accompany evidence of assets and evidence of expenses should accompany evidence of income. So what happened in this case? The court holds plaintiff did not prove enough evidence of defendant's wealth to support the verdict of punitive damages. The court says this, the admitted evidence does not support this punitive damages award. The record does not show that appellant has any other assets to his name. It does not contain any record or analysis of his liabilities or expenses, though we know he owes over 800000 in compensatory damages. A lawyer representing both the insurance company and the defendant driver or other defendant is that unethical. This discussion comes from the 2022 decision Simonian versus Nationwide, cited as 78 Calap 5th, 5, or I'm sorry, 889, and that will be in our show notes. Picture this. You are driving and cause a car crash. Defendants usually call it an accident, but accidents imply no person is at fault, so I call it a crash or an incident. Let's say this, that the defendant driver feels responsible and wants to use her insurance to pay for the car crash, but her insurance company does not want to pay, does that create a conflict of interest between the attorney that represents both the insurance company as a company and the defendant driver as a person? As we usually say in the law, the answer is it depends. And this Simonian versus Nationwide Insurance Company of America decision decided this exact issue. So what happened in Simonian? Simonian is the middle car of a three-car crash. Per Simonian, he stops at an intersection, is hit from behind by another vehicle, which pushes him into the plaintiff in front of Simonian. Simonian's insurance company, Nationwide, finds him at fault. Simonian disagrees and retains his own lawyer to pursue, to pursue a bad faith claim against Nationwide. Oh, and Nationwide raised... <laughs> raised Simonian's policy premiums based on its determination that he was at fault for the October 2017 collision and removed various discounts because of this crash. Isn't insurance lovely? What is the law regarding all of this? This case gives solid quotes about this area of law, whether Nationwide here was acting in bad faith. First, there is an implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing in every contract including insurance policies, that neither party will do anything which will injure the right of the other to receive the benefits of the agreement. This is the Simonian case citing another case, Grunberg v. Athena Insurance Company, 1973 case, cited as 9 Cal 3rd 556 at site 573. That will be in our show notes. Further citations are, or further quotes from this case are, a liability insurance policy's purpose is to provide the insured with a defense and indemnification for third-party claims within the scope of the coverage purchased and not to insure the entire range of the insured's well-being. Generally, an insurer owing a duty to defend an insured arising because there exists a potential for liability under the policy has the right to control defense and settlement of the third-party action against its insured and is a direct participant in the litigation. 
The insurer typically hires defense counsel who represents the interests of both the insurer and the insured. In this usually usual tripartite relationship existing between insurer, insured, and counsel. If you disagree with your insurance company with how they are representing you, you can retain your own lawyer. This is called CUMIS counsel, C-U-M-I-S counsel. This stems from the case San Diego Federal Credit Union versus CUMIS Insurance Society um, Incorporated, which was later codified into California Code of Civil Procedure 2860. Civil Code Section 2860-2860 provides in relevant part under subsection A, if the provisions of a policy of insurance impose a duty to defend upon an insurer and a conflict of interest arises which creates a duty on the part of the insured to provide independent counsel to the insured, the insurer shall provide independent counsel to represent the insured unless at the time of the insured is informed that possible that a possible conflict may arise or does exist, the insured expressly waives in writing the right to independent counsel. The duty to provide independent counsel is not based on insurance law, but on the ethical duty of an attorney to avoid representing conflicting interests, although the conflict must be significant. Some of the circumstances that may create a conflict of interest requiring the insurer to provide independent counsel include, one, where the insurer insurer reserves the right on a given issue and the outcome of that coverage issue can be controlled by the insurer's retained counsel. Two, where the insurer insures both the plaintiff and the defendant. Three, <coughs> three, excuse me, where the insurer has filed a suit against the insured, whether or not the suit is related to the lawsuit, the insurer is, is obligated to defend. Four, where the insurer pursues settlement in excess of policy limits without the insured's consent and leaving the insured exposure to claims by third parties, and five, any other situation where an attorney who represents the interests of both the insurer and the insured finds that his or her representation of the one is rendered less effective by reason of his or her representation of the other. So does California also have California Rules of Professional Attorney Conduct, which apply? Yes, we have California Rules of Professional, or we have California Rules of Professional Conduct Rule 1.7 sub B, which provides in relevant part, a lawyer shall not represent a client if there is a significant risk the lawyer's representation of the client will be materially limited by the lawyer's responsibility to or relationship with another client a former client or a third person or by the lawyer's own interests. One of the comments to the rule explains this paragraph applies where there is a significant risk that a lawyer's ability to consider, recommend, or carry out an appropriate course of action for the client will be materially limited limited in an, as a result of the lawyer's other responsibilities, interests, or relationships, whether legal, business, financial, professional, or personal. This is coming by, the citation here is um, comment four to the rules of professional conduct to rule 1.7 sub B that will be in the show notes. The mere possibility of subsequent harm is insufficient. The critical question questions are the likelihood that a, a, that a difference in interests exists 
or will eventuate, and if it does, whether it will materially, materially <laughs> interfere with the lawyer's independent professional judgment in considering alternatives or foreclose courses of action that reasonably should be pursued on behalf of each client. What happened in Simonian here, to be blunt, he lost. The court here thought his insurance ex acted appropriately within their insurance policy contract. And that concludes this episode of the Ganchi Law Update. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and sharing. Please visit cglaw.com for further blogs, case updates, and news about our firm. That's cglaw, as in caseygarylaw.com.